Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support and enjoy. It's nice to see everybody. Um, I'm just I'm going to read, and but you have to ask questions when it's over. So start thinking of questions. Write them down on your hand, because you know when we do the Q and A and nobody says anything, it's just really boring. So. Um, I think you guys, most of you are familiar with the story, but I'll run it by you just for a second. Um, The book is about a girl in Montana whose brother goes to Vietnam and goes missing in a tunnel in Coochie. And the book is set in uh, Montana, San Francisco, which is where she goes when she goes crazy, because that's what you do and um, Saigon. And I'm going to read a very short piece from each one of those places. The prologue is actually set in Saigon, and that comes first because it's the prologue. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, So I'll start there, even though she doesn't go there until she's like in her 30s. And then it backs up until it begins when she's nine. So anyway... Um, If I can remember where I was going to start, I will start there. At the beginning, um, I don't think there's anything mysterious about this. A couple of names that might not be recognizable. Um, Fung is a a Vietnamese girl's name, and it means phoenix, basically. But it's a very common name. And the bartender, of course, there's a bartender, and his name is Tall. So, that's it. Here we go. Jasper says this is the kind of heat that makes people in Australia shoot each other, or stab, strangle, run over, whatever. But we are not in Australia. We are in a a once infamous city whose inhabitants still call it Saigon. It has not rained in months, but tonight it will, and the rain will go more or less unmentioned, but not unnoticed. It will still be hot, but the relief will be palpable. In Australia, they will stop killing each other, but only if they get some rain there, too. We have been waiting, playing pool and drinking beer, and sometimes when we can't take it anymore, finding air-conditioned places that will let us in. In those places, you pay the usual dollar for a beer, two more dollars for the air-conditioning. The caravel is one of those places in the wrecks, and now these fancy new restaurants appearing block by block almost overnight. There is a swimming pool on the roof of the wrecks, and it is often full of corpulent Russian tourists, suntanned like scraped cowhide. They are loud, and they never come to the lotus. This is our bar. No air con. Rats the size of puppies, but they stay in the dark corners usually until closing time. The government here is renting Jasper from Australia so he can teach young Vietnamese pilots how to fly passenger planes. He is part of a contingent of Qantas boys, another of whom has managed to woo me into bed, which really didn't require all that much effort. This other one looks vaguely like Jim Morrison and has a room at the Rex with aircon and a bathtub. 
We are not in love, not by a long shot. If he were one of the French boys, maybe I would be in love. The Aussie is mainly in love with himself. But the bathtub is nice. It slows down the process of going crazy. You know, this is a sad story, but you guys are allowed to laugh. So you know. Everybody looks so serious. Back in February, during Tet, Jasper drank so much it almost killed him and they had to send him home. The day after the hospital set him loose, I waited on the steps of the wrecks with him while they put his gear in a cab. He didn't want to go. He'd found his place. He was almost in tears. Big, broad-shouldered, rowdy Karen's bruiser, barely able to get the words out. Nothing for me here, he said. I shouldn't have done it. It was in the air, I said. Couldn't be helped. He patted my shoulder. The street was still littered with mounds of pink paper from the millions of firecrackers that had gone off nonstop for three days. They let him come back last week. He promised to behave. If he fucks up this time, he goes home for good. A little while ago, he headed across the street to the apocalypse now, a serious bar where people go to get seriously drunk. He was shaky even after three beers. I won't see him come out. I won't see him ever again. It's slow tonight, and since she is not needed to flirt and serve drinks, Fung and I are hanging out at the front window. It is octagonal and quite large, maybe six or eight feet across, and contains not a bit of glass. The sill is fairly wide, meaning a person could sit on it if she were so inclined, and often I can be found perched there, gecko-like, trying to blend in. At last call, Thal, the bartender, will close the rusted aluminum accordion shutters and latch them with a heavy round padlock the diameter of a dessert plate. I wonder if the shutters are made like so much is here of metal salvaged from crashed American warplanes. I wonder about a lot of things at this window. Last call is still hours away. It's April. In a few short years, Bill Clinton will mark the middle of his first term by reestablishing diplomatic relations with Vietnam, and Americans will turn up in droves, some for the first time, some not. For now, we are few and far between, and except for one in particular, I have not yet missed us very much. This American, the one telling this story, is almost but not quite old enough to have been here the first time around. I don't know where the years have gone. If I didn't have to count the ones I don't entirely remember, I would actually be a lot younger. This is not all that funny, I know, but it was not deliberate either. Some things just happen. Shit happens. Everyone says so. Gone to Kuchi already, Fung asks me. Visit brother. By which she means have I gone by now. She says this without looking directly at me because she knows I have not gone. One of these days, though, I might surprise her. Mick has been away more than half my life, but this is the first time I have set out to look for him as I have been very busy denying the undeniable. When I was a kid, he would take me into the foothills of the little Rockies on his motorcycle. He knew where to look for fossils. He knew what they were when he found them. I can still see, set on the palm of his hand, a chunk of quartz etched with tiny filaments like hairs. He tells me the etchings are the imprint of dinosaur feathers. We are in a cave and I am holding the flashlight. I search his face to see if he is making it up, but think maybe this time he is telling the truth. Remember this, Riley, I tell myself. Hang on to this. To Fung, I say, not yet. She looks at me and rolls her eyes, just up, over to one side, and back again, not all the way around. Her eyebrows are pencil-lined thin and perfectly arched. I would look ridiculous in those eyebrows. I tell her she looks like Madame New. 
Jin Kaidao, she says, crazy in the head. I agree. I have seen photos of the madam soon after her husband and his brother, South Vietnamese... South Vietnam's president were assassinated in 1963. She is holding court in L.A., accusing Kennedy not a hair out of place. The woman had some nerve. You have to give her that. But it dawns on me that Fung might not be talking about the dragon lady at all. If she isn't, I can't argue. Crazy is clearly my comfort zone, my DMZ. And as for visiting ghosts, the Vietnamese are used to that. It is no cause for commotion. My brother, if I am being honest, is only one of the ghosts I have come here to visit, by which I mean the shadows in my head and not necessarily dead people because I still don't know. Show me a body. Maybe I'll believe. That's Vietnam. This is Montana. Um, she's about 16, and her brother has already gone. He goes missing when she's 13, and she goes a little, you know, like that. And so she meets a boy in a gas station, and he lives on the reservation. He's a... He's, I don't know which tribe he's from. I had never, I sort of made one up in my head. It's an, and Montana's a big place, and there are a lot of Indian reservations in, in the, the, the area that I was writing about, so I never, I didn't pick one. Um, and, okay. He'd seen her the first time the year before. Oh, and this is told from his point of view. He'd seen her the first time the year before, in 1971, in the summer, when her dad's pickup had broken down, taking a shortcut through the res, coming back from a trip to Great Falls. Daryl knew how the shadows of the fence posts angled across the road on that stretch at that time of day. Dead animals stuck fast and flat to the pavement, paws reaching for the borrow pits, caught in a run. The tow truck had taken the girl and her father to a service station just outside the boundary, where she'd sat at the corner of the building in a patch of sun, watching her father as he leaned against the pickup's fender and smoked cigarettes, quietly shooting the breeze with the mechanic. Daryl showed up with a new tie rod from the parts store where he worked, handed it over to the mechanic, and had him sign the invoice. He was getting, ready, getting back into his truck when he saw her sitting there, legs akimbo off the sidewalk, shirt tail out, jeans cuffed and torn at the knee, ratty beaded moccasins tromped down at the back, long, unruly auburn hair covering half her face or more, sunglasses with blue lenses. By then, she was looking out at the prairie like she was waiting for someone she knew would be coming along from that direction, not his. He left the truck door open and walked across the lot to where she sat and then stood a little off to the side and looked where she was looking. Not much out there, he said. She turned her face up to him, I guess. She was clearly confused by his sudden appearance. Something else, too. Wait, she said, no, that's not right. She sounded a little frantic, like his cousin Leonard, with a stutter, when he knew he was coming up on something hard and unavoidable, like an M-word, like ma'am, a word he and Daryl both used a lot because they had been raised to be gentlemen. There is something out there, she said, animals, rabbits, antelope, paint ponies. Her voice deepened, gold in them their hills. 
She laughed as she said the last part, but still it had all come out headlong, a little precipitous, paint and ponies mashed together, so what he heard, even if it was not what she'd meant to say, was pain ponies. And she was right. He knew that land, those animals. He knew something about paint ponies. He knew about the pain ones, too. Bones, she whispered, or didn't quite. She formed the word precisely, but not enough sound came out to actually hear. He was watching her mouth, though, so he knew what she'd said. What kind of bones? He pictured human bones, cow skulls. He wondered what she was on. All kinds, jaw bones, finger bones, ham bones. Again, the laugh that caught and skipped like a scratch on a record. Bones no one is ever going to find. She looked up again, pulled her sunglasses down lower on her nose. Her pupils were so dilated he could barely see the gold-specked green around them, but he could see it enough. You just going to stand there? I guess not, he said, and crouched down in front of her. What's your name? Ginger Rogers, she said. He laughed. Yeah, and I'm Fred Astaire. You can't be, she said. You're an Indian. And you can't be Ginger Rogers. You're too young, and I bet you can't even dance. I bet I can, she said. She was going to be 16 pretty soon. He was older, almost 20. My brother's 21, she said, and picked up a small, sharp white stone from the pavement and put it in her mouth. He always will be. For a quick silver second, panic cut across her eyes again, but then it was gone and she nearly smiled. What does that mean? She moved her face close to his, moved the stone into her cheek with her tongue. It means I'm wasted. She giggled, not exactly like a young girl would. The sound was a little bit raw and edgy, but it had some lightness to it even still. He wanted to hear it again. I can't even see straight, she said. I got that. What's your poison? Mescaline. You want some? She reached into her pocket and held out a clear capsule filled with what looked like chocolate powder. Nah, I gotta drive. Next time, she said, like there would be a next time. Moving right along. Now, we are in San Francisco, and this is... Maybe ten years later, about that. She's uh, she's settled. She works in a bar now. Um, and that's what she's doing. So this orphan walks into a bar, Cole says, to make Riley laugh. She's Riley, the main person in this. Although there is no more to it, just the one line. It is not a joke at all. He gives her his best Elvis look, blue eyes narrowed, eyelashes ridiculously long, head cocked slightly right and down, the merest rumor of a smile at one corner of his mouth. She is five, maybe six years older than he is, which is not quite 21, but he has a fake ID she pretends to believe, even though it is an obvious hack job. He watches as she consoles another regular and listens attentively to a story of love gone wrong, the inability to find someone new, the futility of trying. You just haven't met the right person, Riley says, but you will. You have so much to offer. In one month, Cole has heard these same words come from that beautiful mouth at least ten times before, spoken to at least ten different women with ten different ex-girlfriends. Well, sometimes the ex-girlfriends overlap. It's sort of that kind of a bar. An hour later, she is pouring a club soda for a repeat wagoneer who is obviously hanging on by a weakening thread. One day at a time, Riley says, without apparent irony, and the gal repeats it. Yes, she says, 
Riley says, maybe a meeting? Gently, no judgment. It's that kind of bar, too, sometimes. I think there's a two o'clock at St. Kevin's. You're right, there is. The woman downs her soda, squares her shoulders, and reaches across the bar for Riley's hand. You're a doll, sweetheart. Thanks for saving my life again. Riley pats the woman's hand. You're going to be fine. When she leaves, Riley sighs. Whoa, she says, and pours herself a shot. Everyone loves the bartender, she tells Cole later. It doesn't matter who it is. It does matter, he thinks, but it is just like her to believe it doesn't. It matters that she's nice to people and she doesn't act like she's something special just because she can reach the bottles without climbing over the bar. And she's funny and she's pretty sometimes and she has that mouth. He loves watching it the way it never seems to be able to stay still even when she isn't talking. And he loves how she gives everyone a bunch of second chances because she knows that human beings are flawed. He knows this because she has told him but he is not supposed to tell anyone else. He brings her presents, strawberries, pizza, Valium, flowers he's picked out of someone's yard. When he brings the Valium, she says, How did you know my favorite color is blue? She cuts one in half, chases it down with a beer. She picks the toppings off the pizza and feeds the crust to a dog someone's tied to a parking meter out front. The flowers go in a chimney glass set on the bar by the beer taps. Customers ask where they came from. My new boyfriend, she says, and laughs. And Cole watches her mouth when she does it. He plays songs on the jukebox for her when he can tell she's starting to wear down. Songs like Brown Eyed Girl. Even though it is not one of her very favorites, when he plays it, he knows that she knows it is for her. Even though her eyes are green like his mother's eyes were, the way he remembers them. The Van Morrison song she really loves is the one about Jackie Wilson, the one about heaven and smiling. He sings the chorus to her, and often she will smile when he does. And this is what they do, flirt harmlessly, avoiding any complication, any chance of collateral damage. The orphan joke is on him. He really is an orphan. His parents dead of a car wreck in the California desert east of Barstow, where the Mojave begins and doesn't end again as far as his mother was concerned until Albuquerque. She kept a diary, and in it, in it she hated with a steadfast determination the desert, envisioned breaking down and having to walk until their knees buckled, the sun so bright and hot it filled the sky with only a narrow, pale blue band of not-sun just at the horizon. She imagined their skulls bleaching alongside cow skulls and scaly armadillo skeletons, and she didn't like it at all. But there was contract work at Los Alamos, and a couple of times a year they had to go. When the station wagon rolled, Cole was thrown clear. He was six, and still dreamed sometimes of sliding face first through the sand, hands out in front of him like a runner trying to touch third base before the throw comes wicked hard and fast from the outfield. Did I ever tell you, he says, bouncing a quarter in some trick manner off the wooden floor, cat, (laughs) and snatching it out of the air on its way back up. Nice save, Les. Um, Sorry, I'm going to start over. Cat attack. Did I ever tell you, he says, bouncing a quarter in some trick manner off the wooden floor and snatching it out of the air on its way back up, that I was named after John Coltrane? He knows, since he'd been in the bar last night with her until past closing, that she has a hangover and he is hoping to maybe distract her from it. He doesn't get hangovers, not really. She has told him it is because he is young. 
Just wait, she says. You'll get yours too. But he doesn't expect to live long enough to be old enough for that. Does not count on it at any rate. Only about a hundred times, she says, smiling with that mouth. She stacks just washed glasses on the stainless steel drain board and dries her hands on the white bar towel she pulls from her back pocket. She takes two more aspirin and washes them down with Kahlua-laced coffee. She'll be cured or drunk again by the end of her shift, but she'll keep it together, like always. Almost always. At least more often than not. How about the one, he says, where your heart was turned around backward when you were born? Yes, he says, that one. Did I ever tell you that one? No, she says, coming around the bar to sit next to him and listen. Tell me the story about your heart. Thank you. Okay, see ya. Thanks for coming. Is that your book, The Story of Your Heart? It sure seems like it. Well, it's the story of somebody's heart. Oh, yeah, mine. I mean, it had to be, right? Yeah. Jesse, you're next. (laughs) What was the the hardest of the locations that you write from? What was the hardest one to really capture to get the way that you... I think Montana. I think that... Because I didn't live in that part of Montana. Um... Madison, University of Wisconsin, actually gave me $600 in the spring of um, 2012 when I was graduating to do, it was research money, which usually creative writing, people don't get that kind of money, but um, because they don't know that it exists and they can't write grants. But I did, I wrote a little grant. And they gave me $600 to drive around Montana, and I was like, don't throw me into the briar patch. It was awesome. So I did. And I actually, I went to a place called Zortman. Nobody's ever been to Zortman. Actually, there was a woman at my reading in Portland a couple weeks ago who has been to Zortman, Montana. I was like, you are kidding me. No. Zortman is at the very, I think it's at the very north end of the Rocky Boys Reservation, which is a really small res. It's really, it's really beautiful. Well, Zortman itself isn't beautiful. This hotel was that we—it's the only place in Zortman was kind. It was like the, the Zortman Motel and Garage, um, and and there are a lot of fossils. There are a lot of dinosaur bones in Montana, and we wanted to go find fossils, so they sent us to the dump. <laughs> Like the lady, she drew us a map and said, yeah, if you want to find fossils, go to the dump. So we did. We went to the the, the landfill. That's just where the fossils are. I don't know. So if you ever get a chance, that tree is losing its leaves. Wow. (laughs) But it's not. (laughs) Drought. Yes, ma'am. Um, seriously, how long did it take you to write this book? It depends on when I started it. If I if I started it with the first chapter that I wrote, fifteen years. But when I wrote that chapter, I didn't realize that it was going to be a novel. 
it was just a short story. It was a standalone short story. So once I decided that I was writing a novel, which act, happened pretty quickly after I got to Madison that fall of 2010, I think by the time I finished the last draft was about three years and I probably wrote 10 or 12 drafts of it. I mean, pretty substantial. Yeah, so. And I was still working on it, you know, a year later because they let you do that up to a certain point and then they say, you have to stop now because <laughs> we're going to print this thing. I still edit. I edit when I read. I mean, I don't have the pen, but what I read to you guys isn't exactly what's on the page because I can't. I can't help it. I know I lied in a few places. I added a few words. I left a few out. But for the most part, that's that was it. Yes? I've worked with a few um, screenwriters that go in to present to a uh, film company. And they have, I don't know what they call it, a... Storyboard? Storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it that you put... From going from a chapter about an incident, how do you foresee how you put a whole novel? You don't foresee it. If you try to foresee it, you go crazy, and then you then you're just crazy for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, and that was what had prevented me for years from writing a novel. I wrote short stories for many, many years, and I never. I never tackled a novel because I that was I thought how do you do how do you keep I mean some people can do that and you know there's a lot of like formulaic fiction out there where they actually do that you know write an outline and this is what all the chapters are going to be but I, I don't think for for literary fiction that a lot of writers do that I imagine that there are some that can that can have a whole story in their head but I didn't really know from chapter to chapter I mean even paragraph to paragraph sometimes what was going to happen next it's kind of a magical thing to have characters that you get to know so well that they just sort of start acting out on their own. They start doing things. Like that whole conversation with Cole and Riley, That I have no idea. It just sort of came out. They just sat down and, you know, they just had that conversation. I was like, oh, I get to just listen to this and write it down. So. Did you ever get surprised by where... Oh, many times. Many times. I still do. Daily. It's not, I mean, it's almost the only way I can write. Because I can't, it's, it's, I can't think of things. I'm really bad at writing new material. So if my characters aren't doing it for me, I'm just going back to the beginning over and over and over again and just rehashing what I've already written. So I really have come to depend on them to like turn up and do things while I'm just sitting there waiting like, okay, what are we going to do today? So, yeah. So during the 15 years, you would have short stories and whatnot that I'm sure you shared with some people at times. When people would then comment on it, how would you maintain your story and not get swayed by... What they said? I'm very stubborn. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you you learn to listen to... You learn to take what's actually valuable. 
and there, you know there's also consensus so if you know I'd been to writers conferences and if everybody in the room said essentially the same thing then it was something that I would have to think about but if you listen to everybody that's got a criticism then you end up with something that's not even your own so and you do you have to be you have to believe in your own work and I mean when we were copy editing this I was getting getting copy edits from uh, from my my publishing house wanting me this is where we we really sort of came apart was um wanting me to explain things like what tet is and you know who madame new is and stuff and i was like no i'm not doing it i'm not stopping the narrative to say oh and by the way you know tet is the vietnamese new year i was like if you don't get it from the context and you want to know Look it up. You know, I read things all the time that I don't understand every word of. And it's funny, there was just a review a couple of days ago from um, the Washington something something review of books. And, uh, and it must have, I think my copy editor at Simon & Schuster must have been very young because she didn't know all these references. And this reviewer must also have been pretty young because that was her one complaint with the book was, you know, I didn't understand what, um, you know, what 333 beer is. And it's like, what difference does it make? It's beer, you know. It's a beer they drink in Saigon. And, you know, maybe you could have stopped and explained these things. I was like, that is never going to happen. What was the question? I don't know. Oh, that's in yeah. When I moved to Sai, I lived in Saigon um, for a year in 1994, and uh, and I drank three three. I drank a lot of three 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 beer, and they used they put formaldehyde in it, which I didn't really realize until you know. And you can anything will make you sick in Saigon. I mean, we were always sick because we lived there. It just yeah, you just eat crazy things and drink crazy things. But I finally, when somebody told me that the three, 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 it's called ba ba ba. Ba means three in Vietnamese. It's a number, and it's that's they've been drinking it there for years. I think during the war it was just ba ba was thirty three beer, and for some reason after the war ended they added another three to it. <laughs> and this is why I don't stop and explain these things because you know that's half a chapter right there, and I don't. I don't have time for that. Well, the formaldehyde's a pretty nice I stopped drinking that beer um, and started drinking tiger beer, which comes from Singapore, and they don't put formaldehyde in it, and I felt a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> but then there, there later on in that ch- later on in that chapter, there's a, a bit about um, tiger sandwiches, and the ti- and that was what we called them. A tiger sandwich is one tiger beer between two other tiger beers. So you could sort of judge how much you'd had to drink by how many sandwiches you had had the night before. And then how many banana pancakes you would have to eat in the next morning to sort of begin to come back from the tiger sandwiches. It was awesome. I was a lot younger then. I could not do that now. No. Yes. Piggybacking a little bit off of his, but uh, was there just the 
Um, there was the original one, which is um, set. She leaves the 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 farm where she's growing up in Montana and moves to Missoula, which is like the big city, and works in a gas station. And that was the first story. And it really not at all. No, it was just set, and it really was just meant to be a short story about a girl working in a gas station and driving a really beat-up old 67 Mustang, which was my my story. You know, that's what I did in 1974. Um, you worked in a gas station. You worked in a gas station, too. We all, all the girls worked in the gas stations, and we, we started something. And, um, but there had to be, you know, some... There had to be a reason she was so crazy. And I thought, well, you know, what would make a girl that age at that time crazy? Well, you know, what if your brother went to Vietnam and they lost him? That would make you a little crazy. And then it was. It was just, it was a, you know, it had a beginning, middle, and end. It had an arc, which they really liked that arc. Which I don't like the arc, but um, I'm learning to love the arc. But anyway, um, and then at Madison, the, the first or the next two pieces that I wrote were were both standalone short stories. And one was what the prologue is now, and it's divided in half in the book. It's the prologue, and then the rest of it comes later. Well, I hadn't yet. I had. I wrote that one, and Lori Moore was my workshop professor then, and she was awesome. And I wrote that. And when I wrote the Vietnam piece, it was the same girl. You know, I mean, I just kind of recognized that that this was the same person. She had the same story. And then I wrote uh, one of the San Francisco pieces, and sure enough, there she was again. Um, so I met, so Lori and I just sat down and looked at all of it, and she had seen the original story, because it was what I submitted to to get into the MFA program, and she said, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, um, you know, because of course she's a short story writer too, and novels, it's a whole different animal, but she said, you know, if you, if you f- feel like writing a novel, this is a good start, so... I was like, okay. But I did sort of, I mean, I kind of cheated it. I kept I kept writing short stories all through the MFA. And because it was just the form that I that I understood the best and I and I wasn't I was too nervous to call it a novel. But then when it was all finished and there was enough material, I had to go back and really seriously fix it to be a novel because it wasn't it wasn't one. It was a, a collection of short stories. And then you get into the publishing world, and they're like, well, we can't, you know, nobody wants to buy short stories. Although, a book of short stories just won the National Book Award. So, hello. Um, but anyway, I learned a lot from doing that. I mean, I probably wouldn't do that again, because it was, it, was, um, it was really hard. But I learned a lot about... Write write a collection of short stories and then try to turn it into a novel. Um, the one I'm working on a book now that began as as a novel, although it's totally weird and crazy and it doesn't look like any other novel, but it's just my thing. But I know it's a novel. I knew from the beginning it was. I'm not lying to myself. This one is a novel. It's called the Hello Kitty Justice League, and the first person who can guess what it's about gets a copy of it when it comes out. <laughs>
<laughs> the Hello Kitty Justice League. It's um, Thelma and Louise meet Breaking Bad. Is it set in San Francisco? Uh huh. Of course it is. And Montana. I should. And the Hello Kitty Justice League actually begins in in the hills of Montana. They're burning down meth labs. These two women are burning down meth labs. Why does that look like um, well, it's, I mean, it looks like a few novels, but the, ch- the chapters are very short, it's very episodic, and it's very windy. It's, it's, it's like braided, or woven. A lot of different storylines. I mean, that's just one of the storylines. And the reason I came up with that storyline is because the first handful of passes that we got on The Given World, all the editors said exactly the same thing. They said, this is a beautiful book, but it's too quiet. And I was like... And I said I was stubborn. I can write loud. <laughs> I can blow shit up. So that's what I started doing. So yeah, that's my next project. Is I'm going back to Montana in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to sit there until that thing is finished, done. And this time I won't. I probably won't have to um, write it another five or six times. I hope because it's very intentional now. Yes, ma'am. Just so I could keep writing. If it had not been for Elizabeth George, I probably would not have finished this book. I didn't. I just applied. Yep. She teaches in She's very supportive. She is. That was that was such a gift. I got that money in January of 2013. And it got me through the summer and into the fall. And we sold the book um, Thanksgiving of 2013. And I was just about broke, but I didn't have to. I didn't have to work that that year. So it was really a huge gift. I need to send her some money. <laughs> no, seriously. And they they ask. They rec- You know, they ask. They say, you know, if you ever get rich and famous, consider, you know, paying it some of it back to support other writers and I I encourage all the, the it's, it's only for women sorry guys um, but all the writers that I know who are women to apply for that money yes I don't want to um, be a spoiler about the ending but don't. <laughs> thank you how hard was it to end it <sighs> mm, it was hard I didn't really, I've never loved doing anything as much as I loved writing this book. Like, in spite of how hard it was, I really loved writing this book. And I got to bring people back to life who have died, you know, since I knew them at that bar in San Francisco, and that was really a gift. Um, But yeah, I just, it was hard, but... But it was also done, you know. I think it was done. I did go back after I ended it and and add a few chapters in in the middle. But yeah, it's a you know it's a funny feeling. It is. I mean, it's you live with it for a long time. I mean, I suppose it's like being pregnant for four years or something. Oh my God, like an elephant. <laughs> but. But I'm I'm liking writing. I'm I like Hello Kitty too. It's not. It's, That's gonna be fun. Yeah, 
my agent and my editor both loved that title, which is really nice. They were like, oh my God, that's the best title I've ever heard. But it's, you know, I don't want them to expect it to be like, you know, the sisterhood of the traveling pants or whatever, because, oh my God, if I ever write one of those books, I'm going to have to commit suicide. So it's not one of those books at all. Um, not that I ever read that book. It's probably a perfectly good book. I... It's about burning down my It is not. In the Traveling Pants book? Okay. They don't even know what meth is in the Traveling Pants book. Silly. It's a silly. (laughs) The Given World? I can read you the poem. It's a wonderful poem. Thanks for asking, Les, because I love this poem. Um, We spent months, my agent and I spent months trying to find a title for this book, and it was really hard because it could have been really dark, and she kept saying, no, 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 you know, it's not just dark, it's hopeful. Like, there's definitely, we don't want this just to be, like, depressing. Like, don't just call it, you know, the night is black, whatever. (laughs) Um... Which I was never intending to do. That was never one of my choices. But we had dozens. And so I started looking at poems. And I googled, you know, like, war poems, Vietnam poems, whatever. And then you get into that sinkhole that is the internet. And then all the little tangents. And then I found this. And it's by Jane Hirschfield, who I love. And it's called At Night. Which is also the first line, so I'm going to repeat it. At night, it is best to focus your eyes a little off to one side. It is better to know things drained of their color, to fathom the black horses cropping at winter grass, their white jaws that move in steady rotation, a sweet sound. And when they file off to shelter under the trees, you will find the pale circles of snow pushed aside, earth opening its single steadfast gaze toward stars ticking by one by one overhead, the given world flaming precisely out of its frame. Isn't that gorgeous? She was very, very nice about it, too, when I wrote and asked her if I could use that. She said yes. So... Oh, I was going to say. Thank you. That's work. It is. Thank you. Yeah, that cutting out all those unnecessary words is... Kill your baby? Yeah, kill your babies. I think that's something like that. Yeah, I've been trying to teach my students that. They don't listen. They don't listen. But that's okay. Um, I just taught a novel writing class at San, San Francisco State just this semester. I mean, it's that was it. When she, when I was a visiting, a visiting writer, not not I don't not for a while. I don't plan to be back um, early enough in the fall. I am not ready to start planning another class right now. I really want to finish my book, and for for this year, I can. I can do that. I have I have the wherewithal at the moment to do that. So, fingers crossed that we sell the next book before I have to go back to work. Not that I don't work, because I do work. And write. sell a lot of these. And sell a lot of those. So tell your friends. Yes, exactly. And if you don't want the hardback, it will be out in paperback.
someday. Oh yeah, Kindle version. The Kindle version. First he bought the Kindle, then he bought the Hulk. Cool. Now everybody just buy all the different versions. That's okay. I actually do have all the different. It's funny. I've been reading almost exclusively on Kindle or lately, mm-hmm. and, but I can't read yours on the Kindle. I have to hold it in my hand. Well. Touch the page. Okay. <laughs> I don't, this is a statement, not a question, but uh, there's, I don't know what's wrong with my brain. I've got about Dan. six. Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's high praise coming from you because I know about your attention span. <laughs> I heard you reading the whole thing. What? I, I mean, when I was reading it. Oh, when you were reading, reading it. it yeah. And then I found myself trying to figure out who, who is this person? <laughs> Not everybody in this book. Well. What about Swim? We don't talk about Slim. I'm kidding. Nope, no Slim. Phil Clay for redeployment, which I was just reading. It's it's really good. The first half of it is really mind-blowingly good. It gets very cerebral. I mean, you know, kind of. It really changes a lot um, in the second half of it. And it's still really good, but the first part, the, you know, the Iraq part is, it's really good. I've been reading, I was, they asked me, um, Barnes & Noble has, I, I'm, I'm one of the Barnes & Noble um, discover great new writers for spring, whatever, summer, something. And they want um, a list of six books that are thematically sort of um, um, related and then 50 words on each one. And it was so easy for me because the books on my bed or next to my bed were, you know, um, Robert Stone, um, Dog Soldiers, and the Corpse Exhibition by Hassan Blasim, which is an amazing book, and Redeployment and Fobbit. I mean, they were all... And then one book on um, overcoming writer's block, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. But all the war books are, you know, they really... So it was just this nice little stack. But yeah, that, that corpse exhibition... I can't remember what else. Exhibition. Exhibition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it hard to write about Vietnam? The place or the? I don't. It. It. I didn't write about it. That's the thing. It's. This is not. This book is not about the Vietnam War. Um, the place was easy for me to write about. In fact, I just saw um, a guy who I met in Saigon came to my reading in Berkeley the other night or in Oakland, and uh, 
it's amazing. We've it's been over 20 years since we were there, and just when we sit down, it's like no time has passed. And it's like you remember when we, you know, when we did this and when we did that, and that was just really so much fun. But yeah, I mean, I sort of deliberately didn't write about the war. It was really about people, you know, because I mean, so many books have been written about the Vietnam War, and I wasn't there. So I feel like that kind of stuff should best be left to people who actually experienced it. Because when I when I think about writing about war, I don't need the battles. Mm-hmm. Happen, right. right. Comedy, but to people, and well, clearly, yeah. People, I mean, how many people do you know who were, never came back from that? Well, I actually don't. I mean, you're you probably had friends who who went. See, I, it was my it was my my classmates' brothers that went to Vietnam. They're older brothers. Because we missed the cutoff. I believe that my people I went to high school, guys I went to high school, actually got lottery numbers. But then they stopped sending they stopped sending people over. And that was in 1973. And it was scary. But right up until then, they were still they were still sending them. I remember um, Phil Woodruff, a guy that I mean I've known since I was four years old, or actually since I was born because he's older than me. But his number in the first lottery was one. Really? The guy I used to date was born the same day and here I was. Mm-hmm. Four. four. Yeah. He ended up in the Catholic Carpenters League. He never went. Right. He went to Toronto, Georgia, and built. I think it was the beginning of Habitat. Yeah. That they built homes for the poor. Yep. I found the Vietnam part very fun, interesting. I like 